This is chapter 13 through 17 of The Sincere Huron, or L'Ingenue, by Voltaire. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and recorded here by Roy Schreiber. Chapter 13 The Beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives Goes to Versailles Whilst the unfortunate Huron was more enlightened than consoled, whilst his genius, so long stifled, unfolded itself with so much rapidity and strength, whilst nature, which was attaining a degree of perfection in him, avenged herself of the outrages of fortune, what became of the prior, his good sister, and the beautiful recluse Mademoiselle St. Ives? The first month they were uneasy, and the third they were immersed in sorrow. False conjectures, ill-grounded reports alarmed them. At the end of six months it was concluded he was dead. At length, Monsieur and Mademoiselle Kirkabon learned by a letter of ancient date, which one of the king's guards had written to Brittany, that a young man resembling the Huron arrived one night at Versailles, but that since that time no one had heard him spoken of. "'Alas!' said Mademoiselle Kirkabon, "'our nephew has done some ridiculous thing which has brought on some terrible consequences. He is young, a low Breton, and cannot know how to behave at court. My dear brother, I never saw Versailles nor Paris. Here is a fine opportunity, and we shall, perhaps, find our poor nephew. He is our brother's son, and it is our duty to assist him. Who knows, we may perhaps at length prevail upon him to become a sub-deacon, when the fire of his youth is somewhat abated." He was much inclined to the sciences. Do you recollect how he reasoned upon the Old and New Testament? We are answerable for his soul. He was baptized at our instigation. His dear mistress, Mademoiselle St. Ives, does nothing but weep incessantly. Indeed, we must go to Paris. If he is concealed in any of those infamous houses of pleasure, which I have often heard of, we will get him out. The prior was affected at his sister's discourse. He went in search of the bishop of Saint-Malo, who had baptized the Huron, and requested his protection and advice. The prelate approved of the journey. He gave the prior letters of recommendation to Father Lachaise, the king's confessor, who was invested with the first dignity of the kingdom, to Harlay, bishop of Paris, and to Bousseau, bishop of Meaux. At length the brother and the sister set out, but when they came to Paris, they found themselves bewildered in a great labyrinth without clue or end. Their fortune was but middling, and they had occasion every day for carriages to pursue their discovery, which they could not accomplish. The prior waited upon the Reverend Father Lachaise. He was with Mademoiselle Duchon, and could not give audience to priors. He went to the archbishop's door. The prelate was shut up with the beautiful Mademoiselle Le Diguier about church matters. He flew to the country house of the Bishop of Meaux. He was upon close examination of Mademoiselle de Milan about the mystical amour of Mademoiselle Guillon. At length, however, he gained access to these two prelates. They both declared they could not interfere with regard to his nephew, as he was not a subdeacon. He at length saw the Jesuit, who received him with open arms, protesting he had always entertained the greatest private esteem for him, though he had never known him. 
he swore that his society had always been attached to the inhabitants of Lower Brittany. But, said he, has not your nephew the misfortune of being a Huguenot? No, certainly, Reverend Father. May he not be a Jansenist? I can assure your reverence, he is scarce a Christian. It is about eleven months since he was christened. This is very well. We will take care of him. Is your benefice considerable? No, a very trifle, and our nephew costs us a great deal. Are there any Jansenists in your neighborhood? Take great care, my dear Monsieur Prior. They are more dangerous than Huguenots, or even atheists. My reverend father, we have none. It is not even known at Our Lady of the Mountain what Jansenism is. So much the better. Go, there is nothing I will not do for you. He dismissed the prior in this affectionate manner, but thought no more about him. Time slipped away, and the prior and his good sister were almost in despair. In the meanwhile, the cursed bailiff urged very strenuously the marriage of his great booby of a son with the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives, who was taken purposely out of the convent. She always entertained a passion for her godson in proportion as she detested the husband who was designated for her. The insult that had been offered her by shutting her up in a convent increased her affection and the mandate for wedding the bailiff's son completed her antipathy for him. Chagrin, tenderness, and terror racked her soul. Love, we know, is much more inventive and more daring in a young woman than friendship in an aged prior and an aunt upwards of forty-five. Besides, she had received good instruction in her convent with the assistance of romances which she had read by stealth. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives remembered the letter that had been written by the lifeguardsman to Lower Brittany, and which had been spoken of in the province. She resolved to go herself and gain information at Versailles, to throw herself at the minister's feet if her husband should be in prison, as it was said, and to obtain justice for him. I know not what secret intelligence she gained that at court nothing is refused a pretty woman but she knew not the price of these boons. Having taken this resolution, it afforded her some consolation, and she enjoyed some tranquillity without upbraiding Providence with the severity of her lot. She receives her detested, intended father-in-law, caresses the brother, and spreads happiness throughout the house. On the day appointed for the ceremony, she secretly departs at four in the morning with the little nuptial presents she had received and all she could gather. Her plan was so well laid that she was above ten leagues upon her journey when, about noon, her absence was discovered, and when every one's consternation and surprise was inexpressible. The inquisitive bailiff asked more questions that day than he would done for a week. The intended bridegroom was more stupefied than ever. The Abbe St. Ives resolved in his rage to pursue his sister. The bailiff and his son were disposed to accompany him. Their fate led almost the whole canton of Lower Brittany to Paris. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives 
was not without apprehensions that she should be pursued. She rode on horseback, and she got all the intelligence she could without being suspected from couriers if they had not met a fat abbe, an enormous bailiff, and a young booby, galloping as fast as they could to Paris. Having learned, on the third day, that they were not far behind, she took quite a different road, and was skilful and lucky enough to arrive in Versailles, whilst they, in a fruitless pursuit after her, at Paris. But how was she to behave at Versailles, young, handsome, untutored, unsupported, unknown, exposed to every danger? How could she dare go in search of the king's guards? She had some thoughts of applying to a Jesuit of low rank, for there were some for every station of life, as God, they say, has given different ailments to every species of animal. He had given the king his confessor, who is called by all solicitors of benefices the head of the Galatian church. Then came the prince's confessors. The ministers had none. They were not such dupes. There were Jesuits, for genteel mobs of people, and particularly those for chambermaids, by whom were known the secrets of their mistresses, and this was no small vocation. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives addressed herself to one of these last, who was called Father Tutatus. She confessed to him, set forth her adventure, her situation, her danger, and conjured him to get her a lodging with some good devotee who might shelter her from temptations. Father Tutatus introduced her to the wife of the cup-bearer, one of his most trusty penitents. From the moment Mademoiselle St. Ives became her lodger, she did her utmost to obtain the confidence and friendship of this woman. She gained intelligence of the Breton guard, and invited him to visit her. Having learned from him that her lover had been carried off after having had a conference with one of the first clerks, she flew to this clerk. The sight of a fine woman softened him, for it must be allowed God created woman only to tame mankind. The scribe, thus mollified, acknowledged to her everything. Your lover has been in the Bastille almost a year, and without your intercession he would, perhaps, have ended his days there. The tender Mademoiselle St. Eyes swooned at this intelligence. When she recovered herself, the penman told her, I have no power to do good. All my influence extends to doing harm sometimes. Take my advice. Wait upon Monsieur de saint Poange, who has the power of doing both good and ill. He is Monsieur de Lavoie's cousin and favorite. This minister has two souls. The one is Monsieur de saint Poange, and the other Mademoiselle de Belly. But she is at present absent from Versailles, so that you have nothing to do but captivate the protector I have pointed out to you. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives, divided between some trifling joy and excessive grief, between a glimmering of hope and dreadful apprehensions, pursued by her brother, idolizing her lover, wiping her tears which flowed in torrents, trembling and feeble, yet summoned all her courage, and in this situation she flew on the wings of love to Monsieur de Saint-Pauange. Chapter 14. The Progress of the Huron's Intellect The ingenuous youth was making a rapid progress in the sciences, and particularly in the science of man. 
the cause of this sudden disclosure of his understanding was as much owing to his savage education as to the disposition of his soul for having learned nothing in his infancy he had not imbibed any prejudices his mind not having been warped by error had retained all its primitive rectitude he saw things as they were whereas the ideas that were communicated to us in our infancy made us see them all our life in a false light your persecutors are abominable wretches said he to his friend gordon i pity you for being oppressed but i condemn you for being a jansenist all sects appear to me to be founded in error tell me if there be any sectaries in geometry no my child said the good old gordon heaving a deep sigh all men are agreed concerning truth when demonstrated but they are too much divided about latent truths if there be but a single truth in your load of arguments which have so often been sifted for such a number of ages it would doubtless have been discovered and the universe would certainly have been unanimous at least in that respect if this truth had been necessary as the sun is to the earth it would have been as brilliant as that planet it is an absurdity an insult to human nature it is an attack upon the infinite and supreme being to say that there is an essential truth to the happiness of man which god conceals all that this ignorant youth instructed only by nature said made a very deep impression upon the mind of the old unhappy annotator is it really certain he cried that i should have made myself truly miserable for mere fantasies i am much more certain of my misery than of effectual grace i have spent my time in reasoning upon the liberty of god and human nature but i have lost my own neither st augustine nor st prosper will extricate me from my present misfortunes the ingenuous huron who gave way to his natural characteristic at length said would you give me leave to speak to you boldly and frankly those who bring upon themselves persecution for such idle disputes seem to me to have little sense those who persecute appear to me monsters the two captives entirely coincided with respect to the injustice of their captivity i am a hundred times more to be pitied than you said the huron i am born free as the air i had two lives liberty and the object of my love and i am deprived of both we are both in fetters without knowing who put them on us and without being able to inquire i lived a huron for twenty years it is said they are barbarians because they avenge themselves on their enemies but they never oppress their friends i had scarce set foot in france before i shed my blood for this country i have perhaps preserved a whole province and my recompense is being swallowed up in this tomb of the living where i have died with rage had it not been for you there must be no laws in this country men are condemned without being heard this is not the case in england alas it is not against the english i should have fought thus his growing philosophy could not brook nature being insulted in the first of her rights and he gave vent to his just collar 
His companion did not contradict him. Absence ever increases ungratified love, and philosophy does not diminish it. He as frequently spoke of his dear Mademoiselle St. Ives as he did of morality or metaphysics. The more he purified his sentiments, the more he loved. He read some new romances, but he met with few that depicted to him the real state of his soul. He always felt that his heart stretched beyond the bounds of his author. Alas, said he, almost all writers have nothing but wit and art. At length the good Jansenist priest became insensibly the confidant of his tendernesses. He was hitherto acquainted with love as sin, with which penitents accused themselves at confession. He now learned to know it as a sentiment equally noble and tender, which can elevate the soul as well as soften it, and can produce, sometimes, virtues. In fine, for the last miracle, a Huron converted a Jansenist. Chapter 15. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives resists some delicate proposals. The charming Mademoiselle St. Ives, still more afflicted than her lover, waited accordingly upon Monsieur de saint Poange, accompanied by her friend with whom she lodged, each having their faces covered with their hoods. The first thing she saw at the door was the Abbe St. Ives, her brother, coming out. She was terrified. But her pious friend supported her spirits. For the very reason, said she, that people have been speaking against you, speak to him yourself. You may be assured that the accusers in this part of the world are always in the right, unless they are immediately detected. Besides, your presence will have greater effect, or else I am much mistaken, than the words of your brother. Ever so little encouragement to a passionate lover makes her intrepid. Mademoiselle St. Ives appears at the audience. Her youth, her charms, her languishing eyes, moistened with some involuntary tears, attracted everyone's attention. Every sycophant that the deputy minister forgot for an instant the idol of power to contemplate that of beauty. St. Paul-Ange conducted her into a closet. She spoke with an affecting grace. St. Paul-Ange felt some emotion. She trembled, but he told her not to be afraid. "'Return to-night,' he said. "'Your business requires some reflection, and it must be discussed at leisure. "'There are too many people here at present. "'Audiences are rapidly dispatched. "'I must get to the bottom of all that concerns you.' "'He then paid her some compliments upon her beauty and manner of thinking, "'and advised her to come at seven in the evening.' She did not fail, attending at the hour appointed, and her pious friend again accompanied her. She kept in the hall where she was reading the Christian pedagogue, while St. Poange and the beauteous Mademoiselle St. Ives were in the back closet. He began by saying, Would you believe it, Mademoiselle, that your brother has been here to request me to grant him a letter de cachet against you? But indeed I would sooner grant one to send him back to Lower Brittany. Alas, sir, said she, letters de cachet are granted very liberally in your offices, since people come from the extremities of the kingdom to solicit them like pensions. 
I am very far from requesting one against my brother, yet I have much reason to complain of him, but I respect the liberty of mankind, and therefore I supplicate for that of a man whom I want to make my husband, of a man to whom the king is indebted for the preservation of a province, who can beneficially serve him, and who is the son of an officer killed in his service. What is he accused of? How could he be treated so cruelly without being heard? The deputy minister then showed her the letter of the spy Jesuit, and that of the perfidious bailiff. What? said she with astonishment. Are there such monsters upon the earth? And would they force me to marry the stupid son of a ridiculous wicked man? And is it upon such evidence that the fate of citizens is determined? She threw herself upon her knees, and with a flood of tears solicited the freedom of a brave man who adored her. Her charms appeared to the greatest advantage in such a situation. She was so beautiful that saint Paulange, bereft of all shame, insinuated to her that she would succeed if she began by yielding to him the first fruits of what she reserved for her lover. Mademoiselle St. Ives, shocked and confused, pretended for some time not to understand him, and he was obliged to explain himself more clearly one word used with some reserve brought on another less delicate, which was succeeded by one still more expressive. The revocation of the lettre de cachet was not only proposed, but pecuniary recompenses, honors, and places, and the more he promised, the greater was his desire of not being refused. Mademoiselle St. Ives wept whilst her anguish almost choked her. Half resting upon a sofa, scarce able to believe what she saw and heard, Saint-Paul-Ange in turn threw himself upon his knees. He was not disagreeable, and might not so much have shocked a heart less prepossessed. But Mademoiselle St. Ives adored her lover, and thought it the greatest of crimes to betray him in order to serve him. Saint-Paul-Ange renewed with greater fervency his prayers and entreaties. He at length went so far as to say that this was the only means of obtaining the liberty of the man whose interest she so violently and affectionately had at heart. This uncommon conversation continued for a long time. The devotee in the antechamber, in reading her Christian pedagogue, said to herself, My God, what can they be doing in there for these two hours? My Lord saint paul Ange never before gave so long an audience. Perhaps he has refused everything to this poor girl, and she still is entreating him. At length her companion came out of the closet in the greatest confusion, without being able to speak, in deep meditation upon the character of the great and half-great, who so slightly sacrificed the liberty of men and the honor of women. She did not utter a syllable all the way back, but being returned to her friends, she burst out and told all that had happened. Her pious friend made frequent signs of the cross. My dear friend, said she, you must consult to-morrow Father Tudatus, our director. He has much influence over Monsieur de Saint-Pont-Ange. He is confessor to many of the female servants of the house. He is a pious, accommodating man, who has also the direction of some women of fashion. Yield to him. This is my way, and I always found myself right. We weak women stand in need of a man to lead us, and so, my dear friend, 
I'll go tomorrow in search of Father Tudatus. Chapter 16 She Consults a Jesuit No sooner was the beautiful and disconsolate Mademoiselle St. Ives with her holy confessor than she told him that a powerful, voluptuous man had proposed to her to set at liberty the man whom she intended on making her lawful husband, and that he required a great price for his service, that she held such infidelity in the highest detestation, and that, if only her life had been required, she would have sooner have sacrificed it than have submitted. This most abominable sinner, said Father Tudatus, you should tell me his name this instant he must certainly be some jansenist i will inform against him to the reverend father de la chaise who will place him in the situation of your dear beloved intended bridegroom the girl after much struggle and embarrassment at length mentioned saint poange my lord saint poange cried the jesuit ah my child the case is quite different he is cousin to the greatest minister we have ever had a man of worth a protector of the good cause a good christian he could not possibly entertain such a thought. You certainly must have misunderstood him. Oh, father, I did but understand him too well. I am lost on whichever side I turn. The only alternative I have to choose is misery or shame. Either my lover must be buried alive, or I must make myself unworthy of living. I cannot let him perish, nor can I save him. Father Tudatus endeavoured to console her with these gentle expressions. In the first place, my child, never use the word lover it intimates something worldly which may offend god say my husband for although he is not yet your husband you consider him such and nothing can be more decent secondly though he be ideally your husband and you are in hopes he will be such he is not so in effect consequently you will not commit adultery an enormous sin that should always be avoided as much as possible thirdly actions are not maliciously culpable when the intention is virtuous and nothing can be more virtuous than to procure your husband his liberty fourthly you have examples in holy antiquity that may miraculously serve for your guide st augustine relates that under the proconsulate of septimus in the three hundred and fortieth year of our salvation a poor man could not pay unto caesar what belonged to caesar and was justly condemned to die notwithstanding the maxim where there is nothing the king must lose his right the object in question was a pound of gold the culprit had a wife in whom god had united beauty and prudence an old miser promised to give a pound of gold and even more to the lady upon condition that he commit with her the sin of uncleanliness the lady thought she did not act wrong to save her husband's life st augustine highly approves of her generous resignation it is true that the old miser cheated her and perhaps her husband was none the less hanged she did all that was in her power to save his life you may assure yourself my child that when a jesuit quotes you st augustine that saint must certainly have been in the right i advise you to nothing you are prudent and it is to be presumed that you will do your husband a service my lord st Pange is an honest man he will not deceive you this is all i can say i will pray to god for you and i hope everything will take place for his glory the beautiful mademoiselle st ives who is not less terrified with the jesuits discourse than with the proposals of the deputy minister returned in despair to her friend 
she was tempted to deliver herself by death from the horror of leaving in a shocking captivity the lover she adored and the shame of releasing him at the dearest of all prices which was the sole property of this unfortunate lover chapter seventeen she yields through virtue she entreated her friend to kill her but this lady who was full as indulgent as the jesuit spoke to her still more clearly alas said she business is seldom carried out at this agreeable gallant and famous court upon any other terms the most considerable as well as the most indifferent places are seldom given away but at the price required of you my dear you have inspired me with friendship and confidence i will own to you that if i had been as nice as you are my husband would not enjoy the post upon which he lives he knows it and so far from being displeased he considers me his benefactress and himself my creature do you think all those who have been at the head of provinces or even armies have been indebted for their honours and fortunes solely for their services there are some who are beholden to the ladies their wives the dignities of war are solicited by the queen of love and a place is given to him who got the handsomest wife you are in a situation that is still more critical the object is to let your lover see daylight and to marry him it is a sacred duty that you are to fulfil no one has ever censured the great and beautiful ladies i mentioned to you the world will applaud you it will be said that you only allowed yourself to be guilty of a weakness through an excess of virtue heavens cried mademoiselle st ives what kind of virtue is this what a labyrinth of distress what a world what men to become acquainted with a father de la chaise and a ridiculous bailiff imprison my lover i am persecuted by my family assistance is offered me only that i may be dishonoured a jesuit has ruined a brave man another jesuit wants to ruin me and on every side snares are laid for me and i am upon the very brink of destruction i must even speak to the king i will throw myself at his feet as he goes to mass or to the playhouse his attendants will not let you approach him said her good friend and if you should be so unfortunate as to speak to him Monsieur de Lavoie or the Reverend Father de la Chaise might bury you in a convent for the rest of your days. Whilst this generous friend thus increased the perplexities of Mademoiselle St. Ives's tortured soul, and plunged the dagger deeper into her heart, a messenger arrived from Monsieur de Saint Paul Ange with a letter and two fine pendant earrings. Mademoiselle St. Ives with tears refused accepting any part of the contents of the packet, but her friend took the charge of them upon herself. As soon as the messenger was gone, our confidant read the letter, in which a little supper was proposed to the two friends for that night. Mademoiselle St. Ives protested she would not go, whilst her pious friend endeavoured to make her try on the diamond earrings. But Mademoiselle St. Ives could not endure them, and imposed it all day long at length being entirely wrapped up in the contemplation of her lover overcome and dragged along not knowing whither she was being carried she let herself be led to the fatal supper she remained inexorable to all 
treaties of putting on the earrings, so that her confidant took them with her, and placed them in her ears against her will, before they sat down to supper. Mademoiselle St. Ives was so confused and agitated by having to undergo this torment, that her patron considered it a very favourable prognostic. Toward the end of the repast her friend very prudently retired. Her patron then showed her the revocation of the lettre de cachet, the grant of a considerable recompense, and a captain's commission, which were accompanied by unlimited promises. Ah, said Mademoiselle St. Ives, with a deep sigh, how much I should love you, if you did not desire to be loved so much. In a word, after a long resistance, shrieks, cries, and torrents of tears, weakened with the conflict, overwhelmed and languishing, she was compelled to yield. And the only consolation now left her was that she resolved to think of nothing but the ingenuous Huron, whilst her cruel ravisher relentlessly enjoyed the advantage of that necessity to which she was reduced. The end of chapters 13 through 17